It's about having your creativity be an escape for what you're dealing with. You're not in control of how your parent behaves, but you can draw and you're in charge of how those characters on the page behave. My sketchbooks were like a lifeline. I'd be excited about what was happening next. I mean, their temper was very depressed and certainly had thoughts of self-harm, but my sketchbooks buoyed me. I just fell in love with creating comics and writing these stories. Coming up on In Contrast, author and illustrator Jared Krasaska. I'm Ilan Stavans, and In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Jared Krasatska is an author and illustrator of over 30 children's books, most notably his Launch Lady series. In 2018, he published Hey Kiddo, a graphic memoir that explores his childhood raised by his maternal grandparents because of his mother's heroin addiction. An advocate for arts education, Krasaska established a scholarship in his grandparents' memory for underprivileged children in his hometown of Worcester, Massachusetts. Jared Krasaska, it's a pleasure to have you here in In Contrast. Thank you for having me, Elan. I want to start with a general reflection on the art and the act of writing an autobiography, going public with some of the stories of your life bridging from what is most intimate and domestic and very personal to making this a topic that everybody now knows about. And in your case, clearly, this is a very defining topic and a very painful one. At what point did you start conceiving the idea of turning this into a story? My first children's book was published in 2001, and I was 23 years old. And I thought that was the marker of, okay, here's the happy ending for this kid who always loved to draw. The other person in his life who loved to draw was his mother. And, of course, she was addicted to drugs and she was incarcerated. And at that point, whenever I sat down to write this book, I would stop and worry about what people would think, what people would think about how they were portrayed. And so I would write some and then I would check myself and realize that I was sort of sugarcoating things or glossing over certain aspects. And that felt very untrue. And I realized, okay, if I'm not emotionally prepared for what people are going to think, I am not emotionally prepared to put this book out into the world. And so I soldiered on with my other picture books. And then I created a graphic novel series about a lunch lady who fights crime. It's a very campy story for kids, you know, 7 to 11. And traveling the country with these books and promoting literacy and creativity. And in 2012, in October of 2012, I was home. It was a Friday afternoon. And the phone rang, and it was a producer at the TEDx talks that were happening over at Hampshire College. And she informed me that she was the producer and that their headliner had canceled. And he'd fallen ill. He wasn't able to make it. So they were looking for a last-minute replacement. And would I be interested in delivering a TED Talk? So, of course, that sounded exciting. I mean, I daydreamed about maybe giving a TED Talk, you know. I asked when this was happening, thinking she was going to say this weekend or next week. And it, she said, what's well, tonight? <gasps> The actual event was starting in about four hours from the time that we were talking on the phone. And so I committed myself to delivering this talk, not knowing what I would talk about, just knowing I'd be mic'd and there'd be five cameras trained on me and whatever I said or presented would end up on YouTube. And immediately started pacing the floor and wondering what I would talk about. My wife, Gina, stopped me and said, you know, you're overthinking this. You should just tell your story. It's a story you know so intimately, and I think people would relate to it. And I said, okay, so I'll get up. So I'm not practicing my lines. So what am I going to say? And I said, okay, I'll get up there and I'll talk about how I love to draw. 
And my mother loved to draw, but she was addicted to drugs. And Gina stopped me and she goes, well, yeah, your mom was addicted to drugs, but she was addicted to heroin. You shouldn't say that. Don't try to avoid it. It's just be vulnerable and be honest and just put yourself out there. Your mom was a heroin addict. Say that. And so I think because I used the word heroin on the first few moments of that TEDx talk, it went viral on the TEDx YouTube page. And from that, it caught the attention of the people who were curating TED.com. And so it graduated over to the main page of TED. And now it's been viewed over a million times. But even back then, you know, every time you hit refresh, the view count would go up by like 10,000 people. And as I continued to travel the country with my books, I'd meet so many young people who were connecting with me on a different level because they had seen that TED Talk. And having young readers come up to me to tell me that they had an incarcerated parent or they didn't know who their father was, or they were also being raised by their grandparents, or their parent had a drug addiction. And what fascinated me about it, too, is that without fail, every single school I attended, teacher would pull me aside to say, oh, we have a kid here who's just like you. I want you to have a conversation if you would. And every city, every state, I visit between 60 and 80 schools a year. And rural, urban, suburban, private school that was very expensive to send your kid there, or a public school that was 99% free and reduced lunch. It was like everywhere. So I still had the idea of writing about my own life percolating in the back of my head. Then a switch happened where I went from saying, here's a story that I always thought I might write, to now here's a story that I really feel like I need to write. I have this audience of kids who know me as the lunch lady guy, you know, who's writing these books. I've lived this experience, and I'm able to deliver the experience in a very unique way in the format of a graphic novel you know, in this case, a graphic memoir, of course. And it was those young readers that gave me the courage and energy I needed to say, okay, I'm going to write about all of these people. But it is also in the sense without giving away secrets, which might sound kind of funny to a book that is so open. My wife and I went to go see David Sedaris, and I was able to ask a question in the Q&A because I was in the middle of writing this. This is huge, you know, 800-seat theater, and I was able to raise my hand and ask a question. I felt, like, so nervous. And he said, well, I don't, I don't give away their secrets. Of course, if you've read David Sedaris's books, you might wonder, like, well, what, what are their secrets? What right. else is going on there? <laughs> I sort of got what he was talking about. For the most part, the book is centered on what the Jarrett character experienced and saw. In the instance where my aunt was like a sister, was a teen mother, and dealt with the strife there, I had her read early drafts to get her blessing to put that in there. And anybody who is in the book and is still with us on this earth I had them read early drafts of the script. I wanted to see if my memory was in line with what really happened. And I also wanted to make sure they felt comfortable with whatever their character was represented in the book. And then more important than anything, I didn't want anyone to be surprised on publication day. Mm. I just didn't think that would be fair. Was there a direct say by some of those family members when reading the first or the second or other drafts of, I would prefer that you don't say this. So no, the secrets but... were not only yours, but the secrets of the family. And they would also maybe suggest things that you were not thinking that should be included? There wasn't really any of that. All of the emotional chords were right there. People were removed and they were sad because of what happened. They were sad because they missed people that we love. Some of the logistical items I had about my grandfather's, the factory they started was off. So one family member who runs the company said, well, no, here would be the actual and factual numbers, and this is how this worked, and this is how that happened. My birth father, I had a conversation with him, too, to explain that I was writing this book, and 
I need to know if you want your real name in it or not. And I told him fully, if I was in your shoes, I would also be feeling really weird and uncomfortable about this. Like if I didn't raise my kid and I didn't meet that kid till after graduating high school and that kid grew up to be a published author, someday I get a phone call saying, hey, I'm writing a book about growing up, like I'd be nervous too. But read it. Since I wrote this book when I became a parent myself, the weird thing about becoming a parent is that all of the adults from childhood are suddenly human beings. And so it's not a black and white issue. It's not a book with heroes versus villains. It's about people who live on a sliding scale of complicated. That's the beauty of the book, Hey Kiddo, that the characters are contradictory and they're complex. They are not single-sided or cartoonish, very much alive, even in this form that is made of illustrations and cartoons. So I want to go back to something you said at the beginning, that you were not emotionally ready mm. when you had just published your first book. And then it seems that you stumbled on the opportunity to deliver this TED Talk, and the TED Talk enabled you to feel free and maybe emotionally ready. And I wonder, are there stories that come to us that we might resist, but that at one point suddenly click, and that click opens the faucet and they come out? But are there also stories, and that is equally interesting to me, I wonder what you think, that we might be tackling at the wrong time and yeah, even complete yeah. an entire book when we were not quite ready to round it up. One thing that the TED Talk prepared me for was the self-care I need to take for myself once this book is out there. So after the TED Talk, I was just flooded with emails from people dealing with similar problems. And I can't take on everyone's problems. And so head of the publication of Hey Kiddo made sure that on social media you can find me, but there's not a lot of ways to, to private direct message me because I need to have self-care of the fact that I'm going out and talking about this. When I've been on book tour, I'm happy to hear those stories face-to-face -face because I can just listen. And I know that's what people need to do is they just need to be heard. I was not emotionally ready. And that TED Talk, as I mentioned, it helped me understand how emotionally ready I would need to be once the story was out there, right. let alone writing the book. I did so much research for this book, not only talking to family members about experiences, but digging through documents. I found a runaway letter that my mother wrote when she was 16 that right. I didn't know existed, even at photo albums and looking through the photo albums and trying to figure out why does this person look really unhappy in this group photo? And clearly my mother's addiction was a product of the strenuous relationship she had with her mother and her mother's alcoholism, my grandmother. And then you get to the point where you realize, like, well, I'm not going to go down that lineage, go over to Sweden, find like the grave of the first bad parent, the first person with problems. One of the greatest pieces I used to bring back memory was the sense of smell. So my grandmother always wore Shalimar perfume when she was going out. My grandfather always had skin bracer aftershave. So I bought a bottle of each and it was like a genie in a bottle, mm. just smelling that and just definitely bringing it back. And, and because in the drafts, I'm scratching, I'm scratching, I'm scratching away at memories And you do find things like, oh, I totally forgot about that. Or you find a, a photo and you see something in it like, oh, yeah, that toy that I had. So, okay, what does that toy look like? But what does that toy feel like? So in the beginning of the book, there's a scene that's pretty pivotal where I'm going to live with my grandparents for the first time. And they mm -hmm. allow me to open Christmas present early. And it's this Tantanka truck. So... I can easily go on Google and find images, but I wanted to feel it in my hand again. So I found it on eBay. And even just a sense of holding it, my kids have toy trucks, but they're made of like 
responsibly sourced recycled plastic. And this Tonka truck, this was made of lead paint and, <laughs> and metal and sharp corners. There was just something about feeling the weight of this toy in my yeah. hand. When you went to your relatives and showed them these various versions, as you were saying, was there also at any point the showing of how they would look as characters? They saw some sketches as well. Yeah, and, and yeah. Just as people are mindful of how they say things that will appear in a book, I'm sure people are mindful of how they will look in this scene or that scene. Did you get comments from them? No. One of the greatest joys I have in life is in the book, their aunts, but they're my sister's how amazing their senior portraits were in 19, was it 1982 and 1983, I think is when they graduated. Just quintessential breakfast club, big hair, black and white prints, chunky jewelry. So I drew that scene where I show their portraits. It's framed and instantly just couldn't resist to snap a picture on my phone and send it to them. <laughs> <laughs> and you use... As chapter dividers, some of those documents and photographs in the book itself, which gives the sense of history and of an actual document that the reader has. It's a beautiful added element. How does this come together? Do you first make sketches of characters, then write down a script or a storyline, then fill it with images? Do you first come up with the images and then add the dialogue? What's the relationship between text and graphic? Well, for this book, my first step was to write individual memories on post-it notes and then placing those post-it notes on a bulletin board, trying to make sense of a childhood filled with memories and how to tell a story with that. My first draft was really in rough shape. Quickly learned there's a difference between listing memories and organizing memories to tell a story. So many, not all, but many graphic novelists like myself, I write as a script just as a movie would be written as a script character's name, their dialogue, the other character's name and dialogue, and descriptions of what you'd see in the action. And then it's easier to go over that with the editor than having to fix mm. sketches. So once that is in place, I then look over that script and I try to figure out what the page breakdown is. Because there's a secret art in a graphic novel, and that's the art of timing everything so that you turn the page to reveal things. So imagine if your character is going to open a door. There might be a monster in this closet or something. So if you get to the bottom right-hand panel, don't have the character open the door there. Have the character's hand on the doorknob. So in that split moment, the reader's turning the page. It's that moment of suspense. So trying to figure out what that page breakdown is and then creating all of the sketches. Just pencil on paper, which is then scanned in and married with the text and the dialogue and the narration. That's gone over. And then from that step, creating the final artwork and the artifacts that you mentioned at the opening of every chapter, I had thought that maybe I'd include stuff within the art. I always knew that whenever you'd see the Jarrett character draw, you would see the artwork I actually made when I was at whatever age. And Phil Falco, who is the art director for this book, I shared with him just Dropbox folder. Here's all of these things that I have. And he's like, it might be really nice to use some of these for the chapter openers to give a visual break between all of these illustrations. And like you mentioned, I think what that does, it's a stark reminder that this story really happened. This is a real thing. Is it easier or harder to draw yourself when compared to drawing others? And you draw yourself across time. So there's the little Jared, and then there's the older Jared, and the Jared that graduates at one point from college. And there's also a moment in the book where you talk about applying to the Rhode Island School of Design and I think there's a teacher who tells you, don't send too many of these cartoons or illustrations mm -hmm. because they want to see something different. 
Very often we think of young, bright, creative, talented illustrators like you either drawing images that have already been drawn, maybe by the classics, imitating them, or drawing themselves. So I wonder if once you sat down and created the story of Jared that comes across time, if you noticed how your own character in terms of illustration was changing. Having gone through art school and art classes in high school, you're constantly drawing self-portraits. So that was the least weird part, was drawing myself. And I always had a clear mind that there would be sort of three different eras, like you mentioned. Like there's the young Jarrett, there's the middle school Jarrett, and the high school Jarrett. And I had to take liberties with year by year, maybe your hair changes, you have a different haircut. But I had to give them three distinct haircuts and looks so that visually it would look like different ages. They would look like the same character as Mm -hmm. well. Drawing my grandfather and grandmother was pretty easy because I feel like they end up in my work all the time. There's different characters that kind of look like them. I think drawing my mother was the most difficult. She was very pretty. And it's hard to draw someone who's pretty because just one line that's off will make it look weird. Versus, say, my grandmother, who was a very beautiful woman as well. But, you know, in her older years, she had these big glasses and this perm and, you know, always had a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. There's so much character and quirkiness in that, that if one line is a bit off, it wouldn't look weird. I want to ask you about the more violent and even extreme aspects of your past. After all, you're telling the story of being the son of a mother who's an addict and of a father who was also an addict and then a disappearing figure and of a grandmother who was an alcoholic. You have strategically placed in your book sequences where there are some violent scenes connected with your mother and even red or there's a knife in one of them. Mm. But on the other hand, as a reader, as an adult reader, I'm thinking he's very aware of the audience that he's reaching and he's clearly balancing how much he wants to tell and how much he wants to show of the background of these characters. How did you manage those parts? How graphic can a book like this be and how excessively graphic Mm. might it also be? So just a minor correction, my father was never a drug user, but he was an alcoholic. Things about my mother that I learned as an adult that I didn't know when I was the age of the protagonist in the book. So the scene that you're referencing was she had a boyfriend who had a drug deal gone wrong and there was a murder and they came to the house and she helped them clean up. So I needed to show to the reader that how much danger this kid was around and how grave the circumstances really were. If you notice, the narrator did not mention what was happening. Exactly. So the narrator is 16, 17-year-old me. And since I couldn't give that piece of information to that character because he didn't know about it yet, right? So that's where that came from. And I think it's because of the lack of narration that there's just illustration. It's almost even more unsettling. Like a kid who's being surrounded by this chaos, you're like, what is happening? This is not supposed to be happening here. It's also very interesting that at the very end, you have several pages of straight text where you tell what happened with different characters. You go deeper into the emotional aspect Mm -hmm. of your relationship with one or two of them. You talk about your own children, meeting your wife. And there is a kind of a contrast between the image-driven narrative that we have had in the 200 pages. Uh, the book itself is 320 pages. 300, right. And the last um, maybe dozen pages is prose. Is prose. And so I wonder if you knew that you were going to reach a point in the narrative where you wanted to tell the rest in textual form mm-hmm. and not using images anymore and how that came about. Well, I knew that the point of view in the story would remain with that teenage Jared. 
And I knew it would end with high school graduation because that's like the end of your time in high school. So much was going on. I had just met my father. You come to the realization that your family is your family no matter where they are in the biological spectrum connected to you. But I didn't want to end just on that note because I wanted to come in as adult Jarrett who has three children and is married to be able to speak directly to the reader for those readers who are also experiencing this. I wanted to write down the same things I might say to somebody if I saw them in person, I had a chance to sit down and talk to them Mm -hmm. about how you can't change the past. It's futile to even think that you could. So why go down that road? Just take what was given to you and know that this is hopefully going to set you down the right path for you, that through enough hard work and self-care, you can break cycles. The thing about growing up, which I didn't understand when I was a kid, is that you really do get to create your own reality. Your destiny isn't set by other people. It's going to be set by you and the choices you make and how hard you work. Most of the story takes place in Worcester. All of it, yes. Having been in Worcester many times, I wonder how much you wanted this to be a story about Worcester, the streets of Worcester, the ambiance of Worcester, the smells of Worcester, and how much did you want it to be a generic story that could happen in any place within a certain geographical background? Your relationship with Worcester. What's interesting is that the more specific you get in a book, the more universal it becomes. I viewed Worcester as just another character in the book, and I'm very proud of being from Worcester, and I wanted anyone who lives in Worcester to instantly recognize these spots. Like you said, you visited Worcester, you recognize it. On the flip side of that is anyone who's never visited Worcester might open up that title page and see Coney Island Hot Dogs, this iconic landmark of Worcester that's been there for 100 years, that maybe someday if they get to Worcester, they're, I'm going to stop at Coney Island because we saw that in the book. And even when I had my launch event in Worcester, some people who had been to Worcester were then stopping to Coney Island and taking pictures of the book open with the place in the back and going to get a hot dog and taking pictures with the owners. And my grandparents went on some of their first dates at Coney Island. Mm. And I can't drive through the city without stopping if I'm able to get there myself. And so I did. I spent a day driving around the city, taking pictures from different angles that I might want to use. Some buildings are no longer standing because not only is this in the city of Worcester, but specifically mostly in the 1980s to the first half of the 1990s. And some buildings are just no longer standing. The Gates Lane School, I attended kindergarten through eighth grade. And right after I left, they tore it down because it was deemed unsafe. (laughs) And we could have told you that when we attended. It was built in the late 1800s. (laughs) And it was this beautiful old building from a different era. And I didn't want to just rely on my memory. So I worked with the Worcester Historical Museum to find some archival photos of what it looked like back Mm then. 99.5% of my readers will never have seen that building before. But for the 0.5% who have seen it, like they'll instantly recognize it. On the other side, the people who've never seen it, but now it's a very specific place, a specific region, specific time. And like I mentioned just a moment ago, I think the more specific you get with a story, the more universal Universal it becomes. becomes. It's a math equation I don't understand, but it's just how it goes. The subtitle of the graphic memoir is How I Lost My Mother, Found My Father, and Dealt With Family Addiction. And in the back of the hardcover, It says, when I was a kid, I drew to get attention from my family. In junior high, I drew to impress my friends. And then in another color, Mm -hmm. and I realize that this often comes from publishers, but Mm -hmm. still I think that I'd love to hear your reaction. It says, but now I draw to survive. Mm -hmm. And that is either in an orange or in a a color, like the title. Mm -hmm. You draw to survive. Mm -hmm. Here, it's not to support myself. I don't draw to tell stories out. 
This is a story of survival, and it's a story of your survival, and it's a story of drawing as a form of survival. Yeah. And that text was pulled from the interior, and then like you said, just the publisher, let's pull that out and put that on the back. So that particular line, it's about having your creativity be an escape for what you're dealing with. You're not in control of how your parent behaves, but you can draw and you're in charge of how those characters on the page behave. My sketchbooks were like a lifeline. I'd be excited about what was happening next. I mean, there are times where I was very depressed and, and certainly had thoughts of self-harm, but my sketchbooks buoyed me. I just fell in love with creating comics and writing these stories. And you mentioned the subtitle, How I Lost My Mother, Found My Father, and Dealt With Family Addiction. That was placed there to signal boost readers that this was not for the younger audience that I mostly write for, especially because the word kiddo ended up in the title. Granted, the type treatment is a little heavier. The graphic memoir is very popular for the middle grade reader. The middle grade reader is like 8 to 11, 8 to 12 years old. This being young adult and there not being a lot of young adult graphic memoirs on the market, that was there to signal boost to say this might not be exactly what you expect from Jarrett. We're coming to the end of a, our conversation. I want to go back to something you said at the beginning, Jared, and that was that when you go to schools, it's very important to listen to many of those children that are standing up and saying that they themselves are products of broken families or families with addiction. We are at a crucial, critical moment in American history of a decisive, deep, tragic epidemic of addiction that manifests itself at all levels of society. You put it beautifully, rich and poor, young and old. And there is this intense need to connect it to art and to ways of expression, as you have done. What can a book like this do? Maybe it's the wrong question to ask an author because the author finishes the book and then let the readers. But clearly, it's a book that changed you. Yes. And hopefully, it's a book that will change readers. Is changing readers. Yeah, I mean, more than anything, I hope they feel less alone. You know, I mean, that was part of the impotence of writing this was to say, someone who's going through this could read it and say, oh, I'm not the only one. Maybe they think they're the only one in their school, and they're probably not, but they might not be talking about it. And then also to, to elicit empathy for the kids who might have a more idyllic home life. So a couple unexpected side effects was from the grandparents who are reading it, the grandparents who are raising their grandkids. It gives them hope. Because now as a parent, I get a better understanding of what my grandparents were probably going through. As a parent, you want nothing more but to take these kids, make them healthy, happy, well-adjusted, and someday independent and be able to take care of themselves. My grandparents had all those same worries and concerns, but knowing their time here was so much more imminent to end because I was in double digits. They were talking about their will. When I was a teenager, they were showing me the gravestone they'd picked out. They were planners, but they were very pragmatic. So those grandparents that are reading this could know that they're making a profound impact on these kids. And also for educators, to give them a better understanding of some of the weight their students are carrying in with them. You said that you feel that, at the very least, listening to these stories is important, letting these stories out. But is there something that comes after listening? Is there something that, once we hear the pain that this has created and see it transformed, is the capacity to tell a story, also the capacity to change lives, to transform others, not only yeah. yours. I'm thinking of those kids that yeah. are brave enough to stand up in a public gathering where you are speaking and sharing with others something that is very painful in their own families. Yeah, I was recently in a middle school and a number of students who told me about different addictions. There was one student who talked about how his dad had just recently died of an overdose. 
And of course, your initial reaction to hearing something like you say, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. And he kind of shrugged it off and said, it's all right. I get it. Like when my mother died of an overdose, people would come up to me and say, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm so sad. I think they were projecting their vision of a mother onto what I was feeling. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to say, you know what? That really sucks. And you have to acknowledge, though, that let yourself in. That, that sucks. Mm. Last question. Has any of your kids read this book? And have you gotten any reaction? Those are the toughest readers. Well, you know, for the longest time, this book was the forbidden fruit because I was working on it. And our eldest, who was eight and then nine, as I worked on it, really, really wanted to read it. The book was published in October. She turned 10 in December. Just before the book was published, I sat her down and I explained some of the more difficult aspects of the book, let her read it. I was right there. She was reading if she had any questions. Because inevitably, you know, she's a fourth grader and she may very well have some peers who have read it. It wouldn't be fair to her if she learned about certain aspects of her family tree from classmates before she heard them from me, let alone from picking up the book in some other way. Our middle child is seven, so she's not quite ready for it just yet. In a couple of years, we'll share it with her. Our two-and-a-half-year-old, he opens up the picture books, and he points to the author photo, and he says, that's my daddy. <laughs> Your <laughs> oldest one, in reading it next to you, did she say anything? Did She, she is so looked? profound. I mean, that's where I think that we don't give kids enough credit to deal with some of these more difficult truths in books because – or in life. And I explained to her how – my mother, this is her grandmother, helped these people clean up after a murder. And she just said, well, she was probably just scared because if she didn't go along with them, they could have hurt her or gone upstairs and hurt you as a baby. And I, wow, I never thought of it that way. You know, so she's, she is an amazing young lady. Well, Jared Groshaska, it's been a delight and an honor to have you here. Thank you for coming and thank you for this wonderful book. Thank you so much for the conversation. Hey Kiddo is the title of Jared Kroshaska's graphic novel. The Kiddo can be the reader, but to me the Kiddo is Kroshaska. The book is about his older self looking at the younger one in the eyes. How often do we engage in such transtemporal exercise? All of us live trapped in the present. We know we have a past. We can see ourselves in photographs. We hear recollections others make of who we were before we became who we are. And we can imagine that in the future, our faces, our bodies, our self will be different, more accustomed to themselves. But we don't communicate with those other selves as much as we should. Imagine for a moment that you could meet an earlier iteration of who you are, face to face, you and that other self. What would you say to one another? Would there even be a conversation? Or would either of you prefer silence? Establishing a dialogue with the facets of who we were or will be is actually part of any person's normal life, except that we often are marred in regret or resentment or prefer to look away. Hey, kiddo, would you like to know what you became? Look at me. There's a part of you in me. But I've also defied you. I've tried not to be too concerned with your obsessions, with your fears and dreams. And have I made good on your talent, your effort to distinguish yourself from the crowd? 
Francisco de Quevedo, a magnificent poet in Renaissance Spain, talked of people not as complete, but as present successions, vicissitudes of the same self always in the process of sharpening itself. I, for one, would enjoy spending time with my past and future selves at the same time. It would be joyful. It would be suspenseful. It would be a thrill. Next time on In Contrast... I'm sure that a poet never fully understands. And the poet could gloss every word of every poem he's ever written, that's for sure, and tell you when it was written, if they can remember, and all of all that they might get that wrong too. But what is happening in those poems, what it means, that's a whole other story. Poet Peter Cole on the next In Contrast. For previous episodes, including our interviews with authors Mo Willens and Norton Jester, visit our website at nepr.net. Let us know what you think about In Contrast. Review us on Apple Podcasts or send an email to radio at nepr.net. You can also follow us on Facebook, where we invite you to share your comments on this program and others in our series. Our intern is Delina Hatko. Our music is by the Fresh Cut Orchestra. The executive producer of In Contrast is John Vosey. I'm Ilan Stavans. Thank you for listening. In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. <laughs>